You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 29 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. It's been a while. Feels weird saying that. Um, that intro it takes me back to uh, when we were doing them regularly again. I just quickly checked and the last episode that we dropped was actually in February. So we have had a break. A lot has happened over the summer, um, which I won't bother going into now. Maybe at some point I'll do a, I'll do an updates podcast. Um, but I actually have ended up batch recording a load of these uh, podcasts so that we can release consistently, at least for a few weeks anyway. Um, so we will be in your earbuds a little bit more regularly over the coming weeks and months. And what a great episode we have to kick things off again with Tony Garbalotto. Uh, we've actually been trying to get this done for uh, probably actually a couple of years. I think I first reached out to him about trying to make it happen. And for whatever reason, uh, our paths never aligned. And then, of course, uh, with him being hired for the GB job, uh, it just worked out perfectly and we managed to make it happen. Obviously, training camp GB uh, is open this week uh, for their FIBA World Cup qualifiers. Um, so seems like a perfect time to get this out and get the, the get the podcast going again. It was a really, really good conversation. Um, I felt like Tony was super honest about many things, uh, including the GB program and his previous involvement with it. And then obviously having the job now and kind of integrating with the players and his plans and, and hopes for the, for the future and kind of uh, his perceptions of the state of British basketball. So yeah, anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, have a listen. As always, let me know what you think. Drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com, or you can hit, hit me up on Twitter at hoopsfix. Um, love to hear your feedback. Love to hear any suggestions for future guests that you'd like to see on the show. And for now, I'll leave it here. Uh, here's the conversation with me and Tony. Okay, we're honoured to be here with uh, Tony Garbalotto. Tony, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Sam. Um, I, don't, I don't think you need to say honoured. Uh, it's just nice to be here. Just a long time coming. We've, we've been promising to do this now for a, for a number of years. So, um, you know, I'm happy to be able to finally, you know, have the conversation and talk about basketball, especially British basketball. So I guess the um, the obvious place to start is uh, the GB job, which um, was recently announced. Uh, you are the head coach of the Great Britain Senior Men. Um, so congratulations on that. And kind of, I guess, I'd like to ask, you know, what it means to you and, and how much of a big deal it is for you personally? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, from, from my personal state, you know, situation, I mean, it's it was, you know, such an honour and, um, I mean, you know, from a pure British basketball standpoint, i.e., you know, what you can actually achieve in 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 the higher basketball in this country, you know, should be to play for your for your country and in my situation, you know, to coach for my country. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that from quite a young coaching career age, you know, both as an assistant coach um, on the England team and then as an assistant coach, you know, in the kind of lead up to the, uh, to the Olympic um, Games format, and uh, you know now to be named, you know it's it's an incredible honour. Um, you know, it, obviously, you know, it, with the circumstances, you know, I guess it was the right place at the right time. Um, I'm not sure what would have happened if I hadn't been available, or you know, hadn't gone for the job, or something like that. I'm sure there would have been other 
um, candidates, you know, worthwhile, you know, worthy candidates. But I, I kind of, um, I knew that in the back of my mind, this was something that I, I really wanted to aspire to. And more importantly, I wanted to prove um, to the coaching community and to basketball in general that, you know, with hard work and dedication to something that you could, you know, you could get to this level. Obviously, uh, before before you got the GB job, um, you're taking the Glasgow job, so you were you were actually back in the UK. Uh, you know, I'd assume that, that that job, taking that job, was kind of um, with an eye on the GB role. Like how much did the two sort of coincide with each other, and kind of what was your thinking um, when you decided to make the return home? Because you've you've been in Vietnam for the last three years, is it? That's right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there there was some tough decisions to make, and there was some real leap of faith. Um, basically, you know, now I can tell the, 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 the story, which was that, you know, I, I didn't have any intention of turning back, coming back to <clears throat> the UK. a matter of fact, I was almost certainly going to end up in potentially China or, or Hong Kong coaching a, another ABL team. <clears throat> I was pretty certain that I was going to leave Vietnam. And um, I came back home for a break, as I normally do. And, you know, I met Mark Clark, who'd just been recently appointed the performance director. And he uh, talked to me and said, you know, look, you know, this situation could come up. And if you were in the country, you know, you would have a good shot at it. So when I when I talked to the Rocks people, um, yeah, it was with an eye on on the job and. That, that's where I had to take a leap of faith that potentially those two things could come off um, at, and relatively at the same time. So it was, yeah, it was a, I never, 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 it was never a given that I was going to, to get the GB job. I just, you know, took a leap of faith and said, okay, I'll come back. And, and then obviously it all co- coincided with each other. And then since, since you've been hired, like, uh, kind of what's happened? Like, what, what, what goes on, you know, the, the FIBA World Cup qualifiers are obviously coming up, um, you know, pretty, pretty soon. Uh, kind of, you know, is it a case of we're just going to hand you the reins, do what you need to do? Or, like, what's the handover process like? Kind of, how, how has it all been? I'll say that it's been m- m- more tougher even like the BBL job has been more tougher than what I would have imagined. <clears throat> I, um, my, my goal was to, to try to get this situation process going a little bit quicker so that I could have at least had some involvement with the Eurobasket um, campaign. And it just didn't work out like that. Um, you know, the, the, the advert for the job and all of these other things. So that, I think, was Mark Clark's original plan that I would have potentially some sort of um, kind of mini consultancy role, be close to the coaching staff. So it has been a real challenge for me to try to understand the methodology, the philosophy, why they did certain things with with a group of players that they had. Um, so, so I, I, when I got involved and I got, you know, got appointed, um, I mean, there are a number of things that, you know, you, you want to start doing. So first of all, we talked about staff, we talked about players and I'm someone that I, you know, you can take, 
this 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 World Cup campaign is is quite an interesting one, the same as the the, the position. Um, but I, so I look at it very, I look at it in a short, medium, and long term. So obviously, short term, this is about the the, the window, this window up and coming. Um, but we want to put some things in place because there's never been anything really structurally in place that can improve or help our national team programs. So I came in there with kind of a mandate that I was going to do that. That was something that I talked about in my interview, but not just in the interview. I also knew that I could, I could achieve, but I probably was too optimistic um, in, in my outlook to that um, both from an encore, which that meant that what we're talking about there, how much we were going to uh, get the information and work out what was going on, the handover process, as you were saying, for a basketball side, but then also off court. Because I'm, I'm very, very aware that our senior men's team and to a lesser extent or a bigger extent, whichever one, whichever, whichever camp you actually stay in, um, our junior teams also have a quite a poor reputa- uh, reputation for um, having, um, you know, just not as professional as it should be. I think I think British basketball tried, and obviously the Olympic lead-up, there was a lot of money, so it was able to cover up some cracks. But we're still poor in lots of areas: administration, communication, and then just what we give these players and the experience we give these players. So I started thinking, right, okay, what can I change and what do I really want to change? So firstly, let's just talk about the the off-court process. So the off-court process, I wanted to, I would still do, want to give uh, a better experience for our team with a principal team of the country. So I believe there should be a high-level uh, kit and apparel deal in place. Um, we should have ancillary sponsorship deals with protein providers, you know, supplement suppliers, um, you know, any type of performance enhancing aids, this this type of stuff. And, <clears throat> and also giving guys maybe some added value off the court, maybe some restaurant deals when they're in the country, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm going, one of my first messages to the players is, um, I told you all that I would be trying to make some change. And I'm going to be honest, you know, in coming up to the first window, there's going to be very, very little change from a from an off-court perspective. Um, I think that we just got to work harder as a federation uh, to make some of those things happen. Um, from a basketball perspective, uh, it was a slightly little bit different. Obviously, I have a little bit more control on that. So, we wanted to do a couple of things and we're continuing to do, to do them when we're leading up to this window. Our first was that first thing that I wanted to do was start the real tracking process of the initial squad number that we, we, we uh, selected, which was 24 and, and a, a select number of other players. And so in collaboration with, with Dave Owen, um, I have um, put together, he has put together a kind of a mini program which allows us to um, see the players um, every single week, their statistics, um, who they played, 
um, and then it also calculates their their season, and then their um, it also feeds into their career averages as well. We can gain some more information. Now that's the first stage of what I call the tracking and and talent um, depth um, depth chart process of, of of British basketball. And I I want this. You know, I, it's 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 infancy at this moment, but I want to fully broaden this out that first of all we're tracking pretty much every player senior player that that has a chance of being involved in these programs and we have some depth chart lists to it so we actually have a ranking um even if it's an eye test ranking or a personal ranking from a set of coaches uh and a performance director and then more importantly i want this process to start filtering down into U20s and U18s, and that's a big project. And if we can, if we can do this, it's going to be one of my, in reality, one of the legacy aspects that I believe I can bring to this job. Because, you know, you know Sam better than anyone. You are one of the foremost experts of junior basketball players in our country, and not many people know where those kids are, you know, what level they're playing at, you know, what are they doing, what are their aspirations. And we, we just don't do a good job with regards to that as a, as a country. And we've got to find a way of doing that because we do have real talent. So that was my, that was one of my big basketball aims. And I hopefully I'm on my way, at least we're doing it with the players that we're looking to select in this first window. And then um, making some other basketball stuff happen. So we, we're, we're working with a new set of software where we're able to send a lot of video and um, plays and playbooks um, to the players on, the, on an app. Um, we're able to disseminate information. They, they're, they're the only people that can actually see that this is not a, this is not a uh, public app. Um, this is a, a very concentrated um, basketball specific sport, a, a basketball piece of software, and so I'm quite excited about the application of that. And then obviously, we got to get down to you know the real you know short term stuff, which is me selecting the staff and then the final fourteen that will come to camp in Leicester. How uh, how have the the players received you? Obviously, um, you're kind of in a I would say. Uh, a little better position than a lot of other um, applicants in the term, in in the sense that you uh, have relationships with a lot of the guys already. Um, but kind of, how have they received uh, you taking on the role, and sort of what's the communication been like between you and and potential players? Yeah, I mean, I've just started the process. You know, week a couple of last couple of weeks of of speaking to the players. Um, directly, uh, I felt that you know they needed a little bit of time just to get bed themselves into their uh, to their season. Um, obviously, had some you know really really positive feedback from them you know both by the social media and stuff. Um, and you're right, I, I do do have a, an added advantage of knowing and have coached pretty much 70 80 percent of this group of players that um, will be in my first selection and also are in the selection for the other. You know potential times, so I, I do have a, an innate advantage on that. Um, I'm not asking for any special treatment or you know to, to a feel good factor. To me, um, my biggest message, you know, both to players, to you know, to management, to board, <clears throat> and also to to the public, is that you know I'm coming in here 
Um, yes, you know, it's a, you know maybe it's time that there was a British coach, but you know I believe passionately that this is a group of players that can beat top countries, especially in this format of the competition as it stands, because no NBA players, <clears throat> potentially no Euroleague players, especially in this first window. Um, so I think that with the type of players that we've got, I, I really hope that. I can inspire them and push them and drive them to um, to perform, you know, at the highest level against Greece and, and Estonia, and potentially come out with two wins after the first window. You mentioned there that you uh, you're the first British coach at a program. Um, you know, when you think that now GB in this sort of uh, this version, this since it's kind of, since the program was uh, reborn, it's been over a decade. Uh, why do you think that there hasn't been a British head coach? Why do you think there's been a lack of British coaches um, around the program? Yeah, I mean, uh, better to answer the second question first. <clears throat> um, you know, it's disappointing, you know, and that's not anything um, negative towards Coach Joe Prunty and, and, and what he was faced with, but it was disappointing that there that, that there wasn't at least one British assistant coach outside of Nate. I mean, Nate, um, Nate is a naturalised British person, but I mean a, a homegrown uh, coach, and that could have come from anywhere. But I've, I felt there was some opportunity to have, have, have bring brought someone on board. So that's disappointing, and I just can't answer anything for 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 the for the for the staff. And for Coach Joe and his philosophy towards that, um, I mean, again, it comes down to everything to do with the game of basketball in our country. I mean, um, you know, the, the, it's federation-led. When it, when we were leading up to the Olympic Games, I mean, first of all, um, I think that Chris, uh, uh, Coach Chris Finch, um, believed in myself and Tim Lewis um, enough to make us the principal assistants. First of all. I thought that the hiring of Nick Nurse at that time was um, obviously showing that he's a world-class coach. The fact that he's at Toronto now, I thought that was great. And, and so I felt that we were a really good staff. And then, you know, we went to Eurobasket. I think it was in, uh, I think the first one was Poland, was it, that we went to? Or was it, uh, I'll try to think, or was it uh, Lithuania? I'm trying to think which, which, which Eurobasket was first. Anyway, we, whichever was the first Eurobasket, we went there, we performed poorly, and you know, the next minute, you know, everyone's saying, "Oh, we should have, um, we should have an international, more international coaches," and I, I just didn't really see that. Nor did Chris. Chris was never happy with having to do that, um, and yet again, you know, people put in a lot of pressure. The whole British Olympic campaign was. In reality, the, the leadership was 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 not right and not not run. I mean, there was there were some things that were done properly, but there were a lot of things that could have been done, should have been done. That you know, both I suggested and other people suggested that would have left a better legacy um, and also had some some stronger type people involved. Oh, I was going to say that. Um, I mean, you've alluded to it now, but of course you. You, this isn't your first stint with the GB program. You were involved uh, previously under, under Finch's staff. 
you were involved in the run-up to the Olympics, but of course you, you then didn't end up with the team at the actual Olympics. Is that right? And what, can you explain kind of what exactly happened there? Yeah, so I mean, um, th- that's what I'm trying to say. You know, my, uh, Chris appointed me. I mean, you know, I would always be thankful because, you know, I learned so much from Chris uh, over a number of years. Um, he named me as the, the first assistant um, when the program was first conceived. And then we obviously had to fight our way from B division. I think it was B or whatever. We, yeah. I know we went through two campaigns, um, two, two, two summers to get to Eurobasket. Um, and, um, you know, myself and Tim were, were on that staff right from the staff, right from the start. And uh, so what was happening was as it was getting closer to to the Olympics, um, you know, we, we obviously, they brought coach Paul McKeskey in, which was correct. You know, Paul was also, you know, world-class coach. <clears throat> and so myself and Tim's role became more kind of a secondary assistance and on, we did a lot of the pre-scouting. So that's what I ended up doing in the Olympic games. I was, um, I was in, uh, Barcelona, I was in Madrid, Italy, in a number of countries following um, the teams that were were in um, GB's group. And so not only was I not going to make the staff, which to be honest with you, I could see coming for about a year and a half that I could see what was going on. Pretty much everyone that was closely involved in the in the program um, could see what was what was going to happen to the to the, the, there was there were certain people that were angling and working their way so that they could be the people that were given the official accreditation. So I knew that I wasn't going to be in, in you know involved in the pure Olympic Games process itself. But I was a little I've got to admit really disappointed. Tim Tim did some scouting and and ended up being able to be a touch more closer to the team. I did more uh, far away and more advanced scouting. So I was hardly ever with the team. I think I spent like four days actually in the London training camp. Um, but the rest of the time I was just disseminating the information to, <clears throat> to, you know, the person that was doing the video at the time. So it was, I would say it was one of the more frustrating experiences and, just disappointing, Sam, because you know, most people that know me, you know, that was m- no offense, but that was my home Olympics. Mm. Um, and when we say our home Olympics, we're not talking about the fact that it was in England or, or Britain or England or London. We're talking about it was my home Olympics. I was born in Hackney. You know, I was raised in Waltham Forest. My first ever job was in Newham. And I lived in Tower Hamlets. I've been in every single London borough except for Greenwich. I mean, it was uh, those were the five Olympic boroughs, and uh, you know, it was um, pretty, pretty, you know, kind of hard to know that the team was there, and uh, um, I wasn't. I was on the outside um, looking in. But I mean, these things happen, um, and they happen for a reason. So you just have to accept them at times. Is, is there any personal vindication for you now, sort of having the the head coaching job? Um, and also, I guess, like, I mean, obviously that that must have been an incredibly difficult uh, difficult thing to deal with. Um, but you could quite easily I mean, you could quite easily be now like like screw GB. Why would I? Why would I want to be involved with the program? You know, um, 
but you've obviously you know come back like kind of yeah how how are you approaching approaching it well so so you know the first thing to say is that the thing that really frustrated me the most was that um chris would go on record at saying this and even people like tim would say it on record um i did a lot of the structural build of how uh, british basketball specifically the team operated i set a lot of the standards i built a lot of the stuff you know that they they did which was you know taken as good practice and some of that stuff still exists as, as we stand at this moment so i was kind of disappointed that um i wasn't even i should have had in my my review i one one thing that i one thing that i was more even more upset about because when you when you look at it nick nurse was you know is a world world class coach i mean this guy you know it's a silly term in some ways but i mean the guy is the assistant the lead assistant at the toronto raptors and chris is an assistant coach in the nba these guys are like really at the, at the at another level and paul mckeskey was a 15-year nba vet and as an assistant coach paul is outstanding he really understands the game the thing that really frustrated me more even more than not being directly involved with the front line of that coaching lineup was the fact that i was never given the head coach's role of the futures team um, I just didn't understand that as a, as I had worked with most of those junior players, you know, I, I just didn't understand why I, I had told them time and time again, you should run the futures team or the second team um, in parallel to the Olympic program. And that group should be literally practicing straight after the, the main group. And they should be feeling part of the main team because Everyone in the world, you know, everyone in in that sphere of British basketball, of you people like yourself who were around or whoever it was, knew how many of those players would quit straight away after after the Olympics. That was their swan song. Mm. So if we were going to have to replace basically eight out of 12, 13 players, you know, we needed the next generation to be sitting there excited and believing that they were part of it. Instead, they got the exact opposite message. And we've had to deal for five years now with the fallout of some of those some of those decisions. Some of the players at this moment still don't want to really be connected to this program because some of those decisions that were made back then. So I, I feel really like I felt really in not bitter fully, but I was pretty upset and I, you know, so my mindset, you're, you're right. What was my mindset? To be honest with you, I never thought that I probably would be involved in, in, in the Federation and British basketball again, unless I, you know, maybe it was going to be maybe a late, even later role as a performance director or something. So that's why I did want to try to go abroad and try to be successful abroad because I just felt in some ways that, you know, my own country was walking away from me and not, not, not seeing what I could add to, you know, to, to the game. And yeah, that was, that was definitely how I felt at the time. So I don't want to spend ages on the Olympics. Cause I mean, we could talk about it for, forever, but um, right. the, like final uh, thing on, on the topic of the Olympics, like one of the interviews that I dug up uh, with you prior to this, uh, knowing that we were going to have this conversation 
Um, I don't know what year it was, but it was in the, it was in the run up a few years before the Olympics, and kind of you like like all of us were was was so optimistic about the opportunity that the Olympics presented us uh, in terms of um, potentially being a springboard uh, for the game to finally reach this magical potential that everybody always talks about it having. Um, and of course, it, it didn't happen, and it hasn't happened. You know how how disappointing is that for you that the Olympics um, wasn't leveraged in the way that it could have been, and what are the things that you think um, weren't done, the main things that should have been done that would have put the sport in a much better position now? You know, um, yeah, it's a great set of questions. I mean, I think if we're truthful to all of ourselves, and, you know, I, when I say, when I'm talking, I'm really talking to the basketball community here, you know, of which I count you as one of the cornerstones. Um, we're talking about the people that are, um, involved in national junior league teams, national league teams, some BBL stuff. You know, people that have been around the game and, you know, have, are, are always working to try to make the sport better. You know, main a lot of people also doing it unpaid. Um, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I just, we, we just don't sometimes, you know, really take uh, a real opportunity. Like, we, we don't take chances in, in at all. And so... England basketball, um, I don't know what else, I don't know what you call them anymore, basketball England, I think it was England basketball at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got to take a massive, massive uh, uh, responsibility for not doing anything. I remember, um, I re- you know, people, I, I don't know, what, whether, you know whether you asked this question and stuff, but I know for a fact, where were you? on the day that we won, you know, the 2012, you know, Olympics, uh, Olympic uh, bid. And I can tell you, I was standing watching a huge Dumbarton in um, uh, 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 Royal Doctor, what's the um, XL. I was at XL and I was doing a community project there uh, for Tate and Lyle. And I remember standing there and could not believe it that we had got it and just like was buzzing just like you know ringing every single basketball person i knew you know mark dunning john collins you know all going through roger Haney, all the people that i've been involved with and saying this is just incredible we, our game is going to another level we're going to be in the olympic games and basketball england from i guess what was it two seven that was was it 2007 that we won the bid? Yeah, two, two, uh, 2006, 2007. It was around that 2006. time. Yeah. I, I want to say, yeah, I, I, I thought it was 2-6. So it was 2-6. Yeah, you're right, 2-6. So 2-6, you know, it's like six years six years out. Um, Basel England didn't, didn't, have any, didn't want to do anything until like the year of the Olympics. As a matter of fact, I want to say they didn't do anything until four or five months out, you know, like no road shows, no kind of educating the public. Yeah. And it's just like, it was suicidal that our governing body did not realize that, that that was the vehicle to get funding, to, you know, generate new clubs, new sessions, new this, new that. And to be honest with you, you know, we lost the golden opportunity. Why? Mainly because, for whatever we we can we can say this, I can say this very very easily with my hand on my heart. We've always had 
um, you know, the wrong people in leadership positions in our sport. And that was the same in in England basketball at that time and the same as it has been in British basketball. We just don't have people at the right time, at the right place that, you know, are really going to make a change. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't tell me, you know, I liked Keith Mayer, um, you know, but if his legacy is, well, he stabilized England basketball, that's that's not a legacy, you know. That's not that's not driving more numbers, driving better coaching, driving better refereeing, um, driving better visibility, working harder with um, the BBL to be a better league. That's not that's not that, you know. So I, I just feel that um, it was a huge once in a lifetime opportunity which we let go, and you know. When we, when us as the basketball community sit back now, you know, five years later, you would be really pretty hard pressed to remember what what actually have we gained from the Olympic Games. We got the copper box, which was a standalone facility. Which, by the way, um, I actually had to tell my uh, assistant coach this story when we went to play London last week. Um, this is a true story. He was he thought that the he was like, oh yeah. I was here to watch the basketball. I said, no, you actually weren't here to watch the basketball. I said, the copper box was the handball venue. I said, this was not, they were both prefabricated. And the reason why the handball venue remains, the, the, the copper box, is that I wrote a 10-page report, which was submitted to Hackney Council, which was submitted to uh, local the, the, the Olympic Organising Committee in support that there should be this standalone legacy facility. And I will say this for now. I quoted in very big detail, you know, Joe White and Hackney White Heat and how that had affected, you know, how they had changed the lives of most of those people and that there should be a legacy to that. And Vince will tell you the same story. That's that's one of the reasons. Of course, there are a number of other political reasons but that's one of the reasons why the copper box exists at this moment because it's it it sits inside hackney and that was the legacy building that was given back to hackney so what else do we have from the olympic games um some nice memories um i don't know yeah sam tell me i mean we've got one one building which doesn't even belong to basketball and costs and- cost a ridiculous amount of money to hire <laughs> Cost a ridiculous amount of money to hire, exactly. Um, and so, like I explained to the, to the federation at that time, I said, "You, as British basketball, should be taking over this building. This this is the legacy, British basketball performance centre at the Copper Box, with the uh, the offices of the British basketball there, preferably." With, with Basketball England or England Basketball also moving there mm. um, so that we can centralise our sport. But, of course, those type of conversations and ideas never came to anything. Um, and so wrapping this up, because like you said, we can go on and on and on, and there are so many streams to talk about. But unfortunately, I just don't see any any aspect. I, I bet you if you, if you polled the British public... Um, you know, and ask them, you know, 
uh, what sports did well or what sports were in, I bet they wouldn't even known basketball was in, in the Olympic Games. That's yeah. how little impact we've had, you know, for, from that. Oh, by the way, maybe we got some floors and baskets that were transferred around the country, um, which, which, which some people are using, um, you know, which is also great. But come on, um, we, didn't, we didn't even end up with a standalone facility. I always say that uh, it's quite funny because, uh, you know, me, you, everyone involved with British basketball are very much in a, in a British basketball bubble, right? So it's like we're, we're, it's all consuming. We're very involved with it. We know everything that's happening. And, and so you kind of see that it's having progress and you're like, yeah, things are, things are moving forward. But I always say to people, well, actually, if you go down onto, you know, Oxford Street on a busy day and you just take the average Joe off the side of the street, and you just speak to them about basketball, ask them to name a BBL franchise, ask them to name you know, a member of the Great Britain basketball team, 99% of them will have no idea. And then that's when you realise that actually how much work we still have to do, and we're so far removed from the mainstream still, you know? Um, I, mean, I mean, yeah, we can go... I mean, and that's a great you know, philosophical basketball question. It is. And, and that's why... I've always championed um, when we have money, you know, as a sport, which we did have at the Olympic Games, um, it, it, you know, and also back when we had the BBL, its heyday in the late 90s, um, we should be spending money on the public advertising campaigns. As crazy as this sounds, we'd be stupid to, like, take the – early the the, the mid 80s nba ads and freshen them up and put them in for british basketball because we we got to explain about this game we got to show like video clips of people dunking on people and the spectacular athletic skills that players have and how exciting the sport is the most of the public it, just their connotation to basketball is the harlem Globetrotters. Yeah. i mean that's not a good that is not a good connotation if you think, hey, it's just a bunch of like guys that are just doing some tricks, you know, or as we all know, most people think, oh, it's a black urban sport. You know, it's nothing to do with us. We got to sell and we got not sell, but we've got to educate our public to what the game is. And we don't, we've never done that. We've never had a mass national campaign showing what our, who our players are and and demonstrating how exciting the game is. And I feel that, you know, somewhere along the lines, if we really do want to sell our sport to, you know, to make, to break it through, we're going to have to do something like that. And I just, I just don't know if there's the, you know, the mindset and the clarity to be able to do that. Yeah. One of the things I've, uh, I've long thought actually, which, which started when, uh, you know, Nick Humber did this festival of basketball, uh, at the, uh, head of the, some of the games um, in the Olympic Park and it ended up being a massive flop. But uh, actually to do, I would love to see the federations do something like a national basketball week and get Sport England on board and get the big, you know, the big federation on board, get, um, you know, your TV station on board, get all the schools on board. So there's like this kind of uh, like, yeah, broader nationwide campaign to expose people to it schools do sort of activities around it and I do think there's potential there um, to do something that raises awareness, you know, uh, to engage with the, with the wider public. I think, I think it's a great idea and I think, you know, that's, some, that's one of those credible, you know, intelligent ideas 
that could be taken somewhere. But again, it needs someone that has a vision, has a drive, um, and, and will push this forward. I, you know, we've got to discuss this because, you know, I have to get this off my chest. I've, I say this to a lot of people. Um, our problem with, with our staffing of federations, whether it be British basketball, whether it be England basketball, and I'm, I'm, I don't know many people, I, you know, British basketball now is such, is, 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 is very, very few people working there full time. So I'm really talking about the, the national federation, Scotland, England, Wales, you know, we staff off with our organizations with so few basketball people. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. I, I say this to everyone. If you went to British Cycling, I can bet you that 90% of the staff have an involvement in the sport. They're either recreational cyclists, club cyclists, international cyclists, or they're coaches, or they're real activists, they're whatever, officials or whatever. And their drive to make their sport succeed is not just be getting paid money. Their drive is, hey, we want our sport to succeed because I love this sport. And I've always gone on, on record of saying, you know, we, we've got a lot of passionate people who put some serious amount of time in this game. And those people aren't in the right positions. They're just they're, like someone like yourself, I've always said, needs to be involved in a prominent position, okay, to influence the game. And we, and we don't have those people in there. And, it, and, and that's the reason why I think we get some of the results we get. Yeah, there's a, a lot of work to be done. Um... Anyway, we digress a little bit, so let's get back to you. <clears throat> One of the things I, I wanted to go into was uh, you've always been a massive ad- advocate of, of British talent and British development. You know, we've already seen, um, even, at, even at Glasgow, you're bringing in GB guys, uh, and it's been something that's kind of been with you your entire career. Where does that come from? Where, you know, why um, do you want, why are you so passionate about uh, British talent in particular, developing British talent? You know, it could be probably be a lot easier for you if you want to pick up a few wins to um, do what some other clubs do and find as many Americans with a British passport as possible, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Um, but where does where does that whole philosophy in, in ethos come from? So, I mean, I'm not going to unless you specifically ask me ask me that question about what you've just discussed because I do have a big viewpoint on that and uh, with regards to getting people with passports and stuff. I mean, I just think that it's uh, it is hurting us a little bit and that's another story for another day but you know my ethos started when I started coaching um, you know I got into coaching when I went to work as a sports development officer in Newham um, I was able to take a, a London Youth Games team not not many not many people know this story like even my oldest players like Steve Ogan Jimmy and, and Errol Seaman and that and Rodney and these guys Probably they know the, the, the background to the story, but I started uh, coaching in Newham mainly with, uh, I was working a little bit with Caroline Charles and she was taking the girls team for London Youth Games. I took the boys team and I, I took these, just these street ballers that played in the park. They played in a, a park in Newham and uh, we got them playing and got them structured. And um, they actually, we, we, we finished second. We, we got to the final, we lost to to Humph and Tower Hamlets. Um, and it was like, 
you know, wow, this is this is quite, you know, I feel like oh, I could maybe do this a little bit. So we set up a team and that's how I started with the with like Newham and, and the Hackney connection, you know, became very, very quickly after that. And that's where, where I met Joe. So when, when I when I used to coach those at that level, to me, um, it I never, ever felt there was uh, a, a lack of talent on our streets in London. I was just like, just overawed by how much talent there was. And I always like to tell a few stories. Now that I'm a little bit older, I've got a lot more in the bank. And so I always tell, I can tell this one, which is a funny one that, again, not many people know. But um, when I started, when I started my kind of first phase there at Newham, I think it was, I was in my first or second, I think my first year, I was coaching in this little gym, and um, so I, I, had, I had got Errol Seaman at that time, and so I got Errol Seaman, Steve Ogan, Jimmy, two or three other kids from Newham, and they were all really kind of talented players, and we had all these athletes in the gym, and two or three of them could dunk, and they were all like 15, 16 years old, and then we had some older ones that were also like just as athletic, and this guy turns up, um, this young, you know, 17-year-old, 16 or 17 at the time and um he caught the ball on the block and uh he traveled like three steps but he just bang banged it over someone bang you know and then the next move he, he traveled again and and i was just like wow what an athlete but he can't play i said he, he's got no fundamentals i don't even know if he's ever going to be able to to do anything so because i'd got errol and i got a couple of others i said look um, I think that you should think about playing somewhere else because I don't think you can make the team. Um, and so, you know, he said, you know, where do you think? And I said, well, what about Brixton? I said, you know, it's Westminster. I said, but you're, you know, you're from, you're from Tottenham. You, you know, it's better. Maybe you go, you can go on the Victoria line to go to Brixton. So he goes to Brixton and that player was Kojo Menso Bonsu, not <laughs> Pops's brother. Yeah. who ended up playing at Washington State and would have been a high-level professional player if he hadn't injured himself and then ends up uh, diverting his career. But what I will always respect, and, um, and Kojo will always say this as well, is that he respected that I was trying to help him in, in the best of way and that, that he could play. Um, and he, he never held it against me and so when Pops was ready to play and was starting to play, he had no hesitation to send him to, to me and Joe, um, which, was, which was really respectful. I mean, you know, it was, that was nice of him. But the, my point I'm trying to make is that, and I'm going around this a lot, a long way, is, is that, you know, I, I just feel that there's, you know, an infinite amount of talent in, our, in, in the streets of everywhere. You know, it doesn't matter whether it is London, Birmingham, Manchester. No, it doesn't have to even be a big city. Um, we've, got, we've got size. We've got athletic ability. Um, our biggest problem is that, you know, we just don't have, you know, means and access to good coaching and good facilities. That's, we, always, we all know that. But my, the, the reason, I, you know, I believe in these kids is just just looking at them and seeing some of them. You're just like, wow, these guys can all do what some of these American players can do. We've got to give them the opportunity. We've got to give them good coaching. We've got to give them rules, structure, um, discipline. And then potentially, once they get to a certain stage, we've also got to help them, guide them, 
to other places that potentially can even improve them even more. So I, 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 whenever I have the opportunity to take a player, I like to believe that that player can, can perform against um, the, 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 the international players that are in the BBL. Um, and I hope that I can also take that philosophy into the national team because I really believe that it's time that Great Britain started winning some of these games against these top teams, not just, you know, playing good games against them. So when, uh, as a little side note, going back, going back to the, the GBCD men, uh, does it, how do you feel about, uh, you can take one naturalised player, right? Um, is that something that you want to do or do you want to try to keep them all sort of your homegrown British guys? Well, I mean, the, 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 I mean, it's a philosophy, you know, it's my philosophy, you know, not to, to try to take, as, you know, those players unless I absolutely have to. Um, and I have, I have had some naturalized players before. I'm not going to say that I haven't. But um, I think my mindset is that I would rather work with a British player. Um, there is some problems with that is that, you know, some of our British younger players at this moment are, you know, not attracted to the BBL for a variety of reasons. The, the, the living conditions, the pay, all of these kind of, the lack of proper training. So there, there are some, some of those issues and they want to play outside of the UK um, because of, you know, potentially better situations. Um, and then these other players, let's be serious, that's the one thing that I've noticed in the past six years, you know, whatever I've been away, um, the amount of uh, Canadian British, Australian British, American British um, kind of, you know, passport holders that are available is incredible. I mean, uh, you know, I've never, I'd never received so many um, of these type of players that wanted, that could, could potentially part, be part of your roster and count as a British player. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at Newcastle, um, and Darius Defoe is the only British player on the roster. That's no offence to Andrew Lasker and to Fab. They're not British players. They're Americans that have naturalised. Um, and, you know, everyone else on their, on their roster is American or foreign. Um, Kai Williams, um, you know, is, is, a, is Canadian with a British passport. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and there are two or three other teams that in, in this league that are, that are doing the same. I mean, I... You know, I, I love Paul James to death. I mean, he's such a high-level coach. But, you know, the, the six guys we played from Worcester on Sunday, um, there were five Americans and one Spanish player. You know, that's... And uh, Dusha, uh, Elvis, uh, Dusha was, is not, uh, wasn't, was play, wasn't there, but he wasn't playing. So he's their only British player. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, so do you, do you have this you know, conversation with those guys? You know, do you ever speak to the guys from Newcastle or, you know, call up Paul Blake or yeah. speak to Paul James and you kind of say, what's going, like, you know, what's going on? Like, why? why? Oh, I mean, I, 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 uh, with Paul, I mean, I think, he's, I think Paul is uh, a very smart coach who knows the rules and, and realises that, you know, to neutralise maybe maybe a teams with a slightly bigger budget that he has to go down that road paul blake and myself i mean listen uh, the owner of newcastle the owner and general manager of newcastle paul blake um we've been 
Um, I count him as a friend um, and someone that's backed me and supported me my whole coaching career. He took a chance on me when I came back from Iceland. No one else would have. And really at that time, the BBL was bigger than what it was at this moment. Um, he gave me the reins to a professional basketball team at like the age of 31 um, and said, go go for it, even though they'd finished last the year, on the year that I arrived. And so I've always got time for Paul, and I believe Paul is one of the shining lights of British basketball. What he has done in Newcastle should be what's replicated on every single BBL team. And the way he manages it, he gets it. He gets the community aspect. He gets trying to put together structures like Northumbria University, um, the colleges, Gateshead, and all of the other colleges that he's got working as academies. Um, so I think that um, we can't, I can't dismiss what Paul has done, but I was very, very blatant, and he knew it, and he, he was slightly embarrassed when I told him, you are a championship-level team with, a, with the, one of the biggest budgets, and you should never be putting your team together like this. But he, he what what can I say? He's not done anything illegal. He's not done anything uh, that's against the rules. He just doesn't have a British player in there on their roster. Yeah. Except Arius. Do you uh, you know the things you were saying about um, kind of players and their perceptions of the BBL or British players and their perceptions of the BBL? And now obviously you're 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 back in the BBL, so you kind of see it firsthand. How much do you think that I, I feel like? You know, there are obviously there's a lot of things that, that aren't great about the BBL, but there's also a lot of things that have got a lot better. But I do feel there's a lot of uh, kind of reputation stuff and myths that have kind of persisted over the years. Um, but how, yeah, like how much do you think kind of people's perceptions are true? Uh, and kind of how would I you mean, describe the state of the league, you know, now compared to I, when you left and how it's I mean, progressing? I think that there's no question that um, the league has improved. Um, I, and I would say, if it's not dramatically, it, this definitely has improved. Um, I think that there are there are a couple of issues, a couple of things that have, have helped. Um, the teams are now more stable. Um, there seems to be some stability in most teams, except for maybe the bottom couple. Um, there's uh, the, the ability to uh, to use this um, to use the NBA scouting system synergy which the, the league is linked to, um, has enabled uh, coaches and clubs to recruit better players, um, both Americans and also other type of players as well. And the scouting is slightly better. So there's, there's, there's some real positives there. Crowds seem to be maybe a little bit better. Um, this, I mean, teams seem to be work, as working as hard as they can in community and stuff. So I think that, the, the, you know, this, it would be wrong of me to say that the, stat, that the league hasn't improved. I think it has since I've left. I think what's, and, and you know, and credit, let's credit where's credit due. I think Andy Webb, um, who was always under a tough task um, when he was really working with, you know, with very limited resources, has done an incredible job. And, and the showcase finals are, are pretty well attended. And, and I think that there's some credit to be done there. So it shows there's some sort of, uh, market for the game. I think what's, uh, what what the perceptions are with 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 the young players are 
that um, there still is some, you know, the, the, the money is very low for the players that are coming off the bench, you know, specifically 8, 9, 10, 11. So like maybe the last three to four spots or at least the last three spots. And that's not even talking about 11 and 12. So I think that I think that there that, that the pay is still an issue. Um, the the way that the those players are treated um, is still not where it's got to be. You know where it is in say France or Germany. Um, that includes living conditions, you know, transportation, all of these things. And I told this to my new owner that when I went to the Rocks. You know, no way should a player, you know be earning less money that, you know, they just can't afford to live or live, live easily. You know, it just shouldn't be the case. And, and I think that there are some situations like that and it's not, that's, those are the things that, that turn some of the younger players off. I want to put a big asterisk though next to it. And I will say that this is somewhat of my kind of theory at this moment I also think that some of these younger players are not as uh, hardened as some of the players in the past and a little bit unrealistic. You know, potentially some of them think they're better than they are. And then secondly, they also don't understand how tough the BBL is. You know, I I had to tell, I had Kofi Josephs in my office um, on Monday and I said to Kofi, Kofi, you know, you're playing against wings that have averaged 16 or 17 points a game in a division one college. I said, you know, these are not like chopped liver players. They're not what you're going to be playing in Germany, division four, or even Germany, division three. I said, you know, like these are not domestic players. They're international Americans. I said, they they can play. And I think that everyone forgets that the overall talent of some of these players is pretty high. It's just that, you know, the, the coaching, the, the structure, the way the league is run is probably just doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, put it up into, say, the middle tier of of, of, of European leagues. Yeah. Oh, well, look, I'm, I'm aware of time. We're at uh, 50... Well, I'll keep, keep, keep going, keep going, keep going, yeah. <laughs> I was going to um, start wrapping up with a, with a few more quickfire type questions. Um, I feel like we'll, we'll have to do a part two at some point anyway to go more into depth about... Uh, sort of the early days in, in the history. Um, but for now, I would like to ask you, um, who do you think is the best British coach and why? Okay, good question. Um, whew, I mean, this, that's, a, that's a great, great question. Uh, there just isn't many of us at this moment. I mean, I, I would say that the, if you're you know, saying who's the best, I mean, at this moment, there are three distinct senior coaches um, uh, that are out there. We're talking about British-born, are we, uh, Sam? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. yeah. That, the the three senior British coaches that are that are in that are, that are at the highest level at this moment. It's myself, uh, Tim, and Paul James. I think that's I think that's fairly you know easy to to look at. You've then got a couple of coaches that are not in this country. So we're talking. There's Chris Hackett and Chris Haslam that are in the coaching. I mean, Chris Haslam's coaching at a slightly higher level. He's at mid, low to mid Division One as an assistant, and Chris is running his own uh, Division Two school. Division Two, 
want to say. Chris who? Uh, Chris Hackett. Uh, yeah, I'd have to check where he is at the moment. I haven't actually. Yeah, I'm he's, not sure. he's in Florida. I, I, I'm in good communication with him, just trying to think what his school is, whether it's Division Two or NIAI. Um, anyway, so you have these coaches, and then you still have a whole series of, I mean, you have the up-and-coming coaches. You know, you can put them in, like Alan, and, um, James, Lloyd, uh, this group of coaches, and there's a couple others like Neil Hopkins and stuff that are, that was my assistant. So there's, there's a variety of good ones that are running the very good academies. And then you've still got, like, I mean, I still believe in someone like Curtis Xavier, who started to do a little bit more now. Um, you know, he's, he's back doing some stuff in Birmingham as one of the best coaches, you know, in this country. And, and I believe, I certainly believe that Curtis is one of the best teachers of the game. Um, you know, people like Steve Bucknell are still there. So, there's there's a, such a variety of coaches uh, to say you know one person is potentially above and uh, another you know Tim Tim has coached pr- pretty much I think at the highest level I would have thought he was an assistant coach of the D League quite close to the NBA um, for a couple of years uh, he's now been named the Qatar national team coach um, so I, I kind of think he's probably coached at the highest level but Tim hasn't won anything so. Yeah, that's my answer to that question. It's quite diplomatic, I think. A <laughs> uh, question I always like asking, uh, the best British junior player ever? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I never felt that, I mean, I've, I have a little bit more history to this as well, you know, it's a tough, like, this is this is going now to where the, you know, about these, these kids not understanding the history of our game. And to be honest with you, not, people not understand the history of our game. I mean, there's no doubt of, like, some of the stuff that I've seen with a few clips of, of, of how, like, Joel Moore and Sam Stiller and Steve Butler were playing at their ages of, like, 16 or so um, was just, like, incredible. Um, but there's that that's subjective in that respect. I mean, of the kids that I have coached, I still don't believe there was anyone better than Drew Sullivan um, from like 17 and under, um, and that included Luol Aju at the time. Um, I just thought Drew was just so dominant as a Drew junior player and. He, he did some things that still remain like in people's minds, you know, where, you know, he'd take the ball, take a rebound and go coast to coast or, you know, just come from the weak side, block a shot. He was just an, an incredible talent. Like, I don't think we'll, there's, there's, there's certainly not many players that can, can uh, are getting close to that kind of level. Of course, Lowell would be right there, but I just thought that, that Drew was just the most dominant junior player I've seen. The best individual performance that you've ever witnessed and why? Wow. Uh, that's it. Best, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen... I remember when I was coaching Newcastle in my second... in, in my Sorry, my first year... Um, I I had uh, Tony Winless score 45 points in three quarters um, against Manchester Giants at the 9X 
Um, that was that was that was a, a professional level. That was one of the best performances that I, that I saw um, from someone um, personally when I was actually coaching. Um, I'd love to think about that one, Sam. Yeah. I know that we can't edit this one out, <laughs> but I'd love to. Uh, maybe if we did a part two, I'd love to come back and say something more about yeah. that because that's such a great question. What is your uh, proudest career moment? Uh, yeah, I think winning winning those three the three trophies with, with with Mersey Tigers. I think it has to be the most proudest moment, mainly because we were all British, of course. You know. Uh, Tafari and, and Nate and Jamel were all kind of naturalized, but the rest of the group was was British and, you know, really unheralded. And, you know, we were beating teams with, with four or five Americans at that time. So um, I just, I love that team. I love coaching them. Um, and it there's, there has to be a side story to this one. i got to tell you this because yeah. it is... Is funny, and maybe the the people that listen to this can will look quickly on the internet. But there's a picture um, of me uh, coaching that team uh, on the British on the GB uh, um, press release for my team assistants um, that was that came out the last three or four days. And I say I said to someone this morning, I said, you know, name the most famous person in that picture. And I said, there's a clue. It's not me. Uh, and it's a picture of me with uh, a couple of players on the bench, but a couple of my, my staff of Mersey Tigers. And the truthful fact is this, is that my head of strength and conditioning at Mersey Tigers was Jose Fernandez. And Ho Jose Fernandez is now the lead strength and conditioning coach for the Houston Astros, oh, who really? just won, obviously, the World Series. <laughs> so I, it's so funny. I, I, I messaged uh, him uh, the other day and I said, you know, it's just amazing. I said, everywhere you go, you win. And he said, well, that's just because I surround myself with the best coaches. And I said, thanks for that, but I'm not too sure that's true. So, yeah, that's a crazy story. On the topic of, uh, of the sort of the, Mer let's, I'll sort of want to briefly touch on the, the Mersey uh, Everton situation, kind of, because obviously you, you won the titles, but it kind of come to a quite messy end, didn't it? I mean, it, didn't it all sort of like there was all sorts of problems uh, behind the scenes? Kind of, what was yeah. your assessment of the situation there? So it was like it was probably the biggest disappointment because, really, truthfully, that was a that had the potential to be, you know, a kind of Leicester, you know, a Leicester type situation. That's a great community, Liverpool. Um, when we were playing at Green Bank as Everton, you know, we were getting regularly 1,500 people there, and it was good, good crowds, good, good, uh, a great situation. Um, so we went, you know, obviously we won something every single year, um, the first two years, and then, you know, we 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 became Mersey Tigers, and Gary Townsend, who had originally, um, along with Henry Mooney, had, uh, had formed the team came back as the chief executive and just he had burnt probably too many bridges um, uh, with with how he had dealt with some people in the community and they just never, we just never got the funding that we needed and it, it was a struggle to get to the end of that season, um, getting everyone paid and some people stepped in at the end and were able to make that a reality but you know, after doing such a great job and, I, and I'm pretty convinced that well, we're not just convinced. We were bringing back that team um, plus Miles Hessen, 
and we would have probably been able to do what we did, um, you know, and more. We, you know, we were going to aim to win four trophies the year after, and that kind of hurt me as well. That I, I actually, I turned down a, a job in Europe to start to, to stay and to 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 come back, and so yeah, it was a very very messy way to end what should have been a really good good story in British basketball. Final two two questions related. Um, what advice would you give to a young British player that wants to turn pro? Like, is there things that you see um, with young British guys where they're getting it wrong, uh, or sort of um, things that they need to improve on? And then the same but opposite to that is to a young British coach that has aspirations of uh, being a pro. Uh, what what would you say to them as well? So uh, the the player. Um, aspect i mean at this moment um it's there is a pathway um i guess that's one legacy aspect from england basketball that they did start to get right and then there's there's always been clubs that have developed some connections i think that the academy programs have done something so have gone some way and there are definitely you know the fact that there's some competition and the way the video is being used and the statistics have really lent to players being able to further their careers both you know academically and also abroad in in mostly american institutions occasionally go into europe and i think that that's been the best you know that's been very good but i think that um for a young player uh, that wants to turn professional they definitely need to get some guidance from people that have been, you know, in British, you know, in the BBL and also in Europe. There needs to be a better network for these players to get some sort of agency representation um, and some advice in that area. I think that we're very, very poor in in how that is, and I and you end up getting lots and lots of messages and calls from close people to that person. Hey, can you help this person out and stuff? Um, but it's, it comes back to the original um, point of what you were talking about. We really at this moment are not giving enough young players the opportunity to at least see if they have the ability to uh, become a professional player. You know, they're just, there is so few spots on so so you know on these twelve teams that it's it's very very hard for someone in in our own country. So what you know what you tend to find is, let's say you know if you're a young Swedish player, you know your your aim is to get into the top league and to earn a contract. Um, if for whatever reason you 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 don't you want to take a, a cultural experience then, you know, someone like Pierre Hampton has that opportunity to come to another country. And that's what some British players should have the opportunity to do. But we just don't have enough domestic spots on our, on our rosters. You know, um, it's just not enough given given away. I mean, that's why you've got to at least credit the London situation for, for them having, you know, a number of real homegrown players this year. And, and hopefully it's also going to show in their results. And advice to a coach? Yeah, the coaches. Uh, and by the way, that's, um, I, you know, so I'm going to, that's not the best of answer. Um, so anyone listening is like, well, that's not, that's a very broad answer. And it is true because the, like 
player like coach, there really isn't any given route for someone to do this, is there? We, we both know this. Um, and with coaches, it's even more so. You know, I find it disappointing that the next group of younger coaches just don't seem to be getting that much of an opportunity to uh, to coach in the BBL or, um, you know, there are a couple of coaches, the coach at Chester or at Manchester, um, but just there just aren't that many opportunities to uh, to coach, to earn money, to, to have a career. And some of them are now at least exploring some options in Europe, but the market is very, very aggressive there. Um, and the same in America, it's very, very tough to break through. You know, it's not... It's not an easy profession to get into. So my advice is, um, you know, work very, very hard at junior level. Um, you know, start the process of being involved with an academy. Uh, try to link up with a professional team. And the other thing, Sam, which is probably the biggest disappointment I have is, you know, just always um, try to go and see as many coaches as possible. Um, not you know, there, there, there are two, to me there are two two factors. You always should be trying to learn. So I, whenever I met, whenever I and still do, whenever I meet you know uh, John Collins or Curtis Xavier or you know Mark Clark, these type of people, I'm always asking questions. You know because I want to know what they're what 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 are they doing, what are they seeing, um, and that may even that's exactly the same even with. A younger coach, if I meet a younger coach, I'm asking him, how do you do that? What are you doing? Um, what do you do with this situation? You know, how do you structure your practices? Do you do a scout report? What do you put on the scout report? So I always try to ask these questions because maybe they have an answer that I've not seen before. Um, so I want to I learn that. And so you, you should go and search out these coaches um, as, as much as possible as a younger coach. And then the, the next thing is, you know, you have to be on the floor. I've always felt that you can do a lot of theory and you can do a lot of talking, but ultimately you've got to be on the practice floor trying to hone your skills as a coach, you know, and that's, you know, working with different drills, you know, understanding players and how they react to a practice session and what they do. All of these kind of things I, I feel that you you can only do if you keep on working at it um, and you've got to be resilient in the Brit if there's one word that I would use you know in British basketball you've got to be resilient because you're going to get knocked down a lot of times or you're going to find lots of problems um, and you're always going to have to overcome them I think that's a perfect place to leave it uh, I definitely think we need to do a part two at some point because I feel like I haven't even scraped the surface on some of the stuff that I wanted to go into um, yeah. but yeah thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day it's hugely appreciated um, and no, of course best, best of luck with, uh, with GB and Glasgow this season um, and uh, I'm sure we'll stay in touch yeah definitely no definitely Sam we're, um, no problem to, to do the, the part two I mean there are some things um, that I'd really love to go in depth on um, especially to do with some of the things that go on in British basketball there's no, no question on that absolutely no question you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.